All right. Well, we're in a brand new series this week, and I'm super pumped about it. Um, um, I'll tell you a little bit more about it. But if you've got your Bibles, um, open them on up to the book of 2 Corinthians. If you don't know where 2 Corinthians is, it's right after 1 Corinthians, and it's, um, it's in the Bible, and it's in the New Testament. And if you don't know where that is, that's totally okay. Look at the table of contents. No shame in that, especially in books that are unfamiliar to you. Uh, but this is a, it's a letter that we have that's been preserved throughout, throughout, throughout 2,000 years from Paul to a church. And this church had, man, they were a crazy town. They had everything, everything that you could think of that would be dramatic or traumatic, they rocked it. And so Paul's letters to them were sometimes a bit harsh. There's two of them that we have on record. Um, and so this is, uh, this is actually in a section where Paul is talking about himself and his outlook and his approach to life. And so it's super helpful for us to understand. But if you could open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, either in your Bible or on your phone, and then stand for the reading of God's word. We're going to start in chapter 12, verse 1. And Paul says it this way. He says, I must go on boasting, although there's nothing to be gained. I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether it was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I don't know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to refrain, or even if I chose to boast, I would not be a fool because I'd be speaking the truth, but I refrain so no one would think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say, or because of these surpassingly great revelations. Therefore, in order to keep from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and in insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Okay, so this uh, last year, last fall, um, as a staff, we got together and we got into a conference room. We started thinking and praying about what it was, what was 2023 going to look like as far as what sermons we were going to get into, what books of the Bible we were going to uh, delve into, what passages we were going to study. And in the midst of that, one of the things I like to see us do every year is have some series that kind of does like a macro view of the Bible. Because a lot of people don't read this because it's super confusing to them. It's like, I, I don't know where to start. Do I read certain Genesis and continue reading? Because that works until I get to Leviticus and then I'm super lost and offended. And, and then I just, I keep on going through, I don't know where to go. And so I would love, I love to have series that kind of like um, diffuse that for people where they kind of get a little bit better grasp of the whole narrative arc of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And so that's what this series is. Um, one of the staff uh, people had recently read a book called Even Better Than Eden. It's an awesome book by the theologian Nancy Guthrie. Fantastic book. We've got some, if you want to uh, buy them, if you find them cheaper online, do that. If, um, if you can borrow it from someone, do that. Super good book because basically it just keeps going back to Eden and making the point that what happened in Eden was great, but it wasn't the end. I mean, even with sin's entrance, even if sin hadn't entered, it, it would have been amazing. In fact, this is one of the things that Nancy writes in the intro, and I love this. It says this, talking about Eden, 
It was unsullied, but incomplete. It was bursting with potential, but it wasn't yet all that God intended for the home he would share with his people. From the very beginning, Eden, from the very beginning, Eden was not meant to be static. It was headed somewhere. Likewise, Adam and Eve were not yet all that God intended for his people to be. They were sinless, but not yet glorious, at least not as glorious as God intended them to become. Something better was held out to Adam and Eve if they obeyed God's word to them. And all of us, if you know anything about the Bible or even slightly know any Christians, you know that that didn't end up being how the story went. Sin enters into the world and all of a sudden everything is poisoned. But the message of scripture is that wasn't the end. That God was beginning a process of rescue that was ultimately gonna end in God restoring all things. So we have in the book of Revelation. Revelation 21 says that he's going to make all things new. Not make all new things, but make all things restored, new. And so this is like Eden 2.0. But the cool thing about scripture is it doesn't just say, hey, just look forward to that. I mean, this, it stinks that this happened, but look forward to that. What scripture says is that God broke into the timeline of history to pull some of Eden 2.0 into our reality even now. That knowing what God has done for us and is doing for us and will do for us causes us to actually live in a state that's even better than Eden. That we have something that is unique and remarkable because of what Christ has done for us. And so what we're gonna do each week is we're gonna start in the garden and then we're gonna go to another part of the Bible and we're gonna look at what that means for us in everyday life. If you start in the book of, uh, of Genesis, there's a uh, Hebrew phrase, and this is in, we all recognize that, we all know what that says, right? Tohu wa bohu. It's tohu wa bohu. Let's say this on the count of three. One, two, three. Tohu wa bohu. If you're looking for a great name for a kid, boom, right there. Tohu wa bohu, uh, maybe not. This is what it means. Formless and void, like devoid of life and light. It's dark, it's empty, it's tohu wa bohu. Like, okay, I don't, uh, for those of you that are young in this room, um, there was a day before God invented Jeff Bezos and Amazon Prime where people, when they wanted something, they actually went to these crazy weird things called stores. And like, they actually would go in and they would like pay. And a lot of these people actually, like they paid right there on the spot, it was weird. And, and if you really wanted a good deal, you didn't just search the internet because that wasn't a thing. What you did was you had this, there was this magical day that took place right after Thanksgiving every single year. And what was it called? Black Friday. And on that day, you rose early in the morning and you went over to Best Buy at 3 a.m. And you camped out with all the other psychos outside. So you get 50% off like a little like phone card or something, like a little like camera chip or something that made it worth all of that and freezing your toes off and nearly getting frostbite. Yes, this happened to me. And it's like, that's, that's, that was the thing, right? And so people would do that because you knew if you didn't camp out at 3 a.m., there wasn't any like, you know, there wasn't like uh, a, a deal that was gonna be all oh, on Cyber Monday. There was no Cyber Monday. So like, this was your one shot to get the best deals. Otherwise, Christmas is ruined and you are responsible. And so what people would do, if they would know if they didn't show up early to get the door busters. If they showed up on time to Best Buy, they would walk into the store. If they were just there when it opened, they'd walk in and they would see all that they wanted not existing. There'd be a phrase, a Hebrew phrase that would describe what they were seeing. And what would that phrase be? 
tohu wa bohu. If you've ever been in a situation where you've raised boys and they're now teenage boys and they, they eat in your house or you are unfortunate enough to invite teenage boys in for a meal or just to hang out with other friends or whatever and the next day you go to your pantry, there's a Hebrew phrase to describe what you're about to see when you open that pantry. What is that phrase? You know it. If you've ever been at a party or you've gone up to someone and you're like, you see someone that you met, you know this person, like you know this person. You've had conversations, legitimate conversations with this person. And you go up to talk to them as you're about to raise, you know, especially about to open up your mouth to say their name, you realize something. You have forgotten their name. It is gone. There's a description for what's happening existing inside of your mental capacity in that moment. And what is that Hebrew phrase? Oh yeah, tohu wabohu. And so that's what the Bible says starts off the pre-creation earth. The pre-finished product is tohu wabohu. It's formless, it's void. The, the hills have not yet started. And even as they're starting, they don't look like they're ultimately gonna look. There's no birds, there's no light, there's no people. It's tohu wabohu. Now, is there no hope? No, there is hope. Because it's described, the earth is described as tohu wabohu, but God is described as hovering over this wasteland. And the thing about this wasteland and the wasteland that we see all throughout the Bible is that whenever there is a wasteland for God's people, it's setting itself up to come into some type of promised land. There's significant wastelands and periods of just garbage and man, this is a wilderness, but it's not the end. It's leading to somewhere and that leads to Eden. He creates Eden. And Eden is perfect. It's paradise. It's, got, it's a place where people have a perfect relationship with God, their creator, perfect relationship with other humanity, and a perfect relationship with the ecosystem around them, the world. Everything is great. And so Satan, we have from the very beginning, is someone who's countered the work of God. He's bent and determined, bound and determined, to disassemble and, and derail God's intent. And so he's going to destroy creation. But he doesn't go around like in the Lorax and just like chop down the trees. He doesn't just start like burning stuff. He introduces sin, but he does it in a really unique way. It's actually a way that we still are tasting the effects of to this day. He enters into a conversation with Eve and then to Adam that inserts discontentment. Like you think you have it so good, but I mean, really, do you have it so good? I mean, it could be better. Why in the world, if God is so good, would he set up a situation where you're not allowed to do whatever you want to do? Like, is that really a good God? Or is that a little like, I mean, he's kind of being a helicopter God, don't you think? And, and introducing this discontentment. Discontentment is something that we ha has been biting us ever since. Discontentment is more common than cancer. And over the course of a person's lifetime is far more disastrous. It'll ruin relationships. It'll ru ruin jobs. It'll ruin your, uh, your plans. It'll ruin your future. Discontentment derails God's intent creation is calling us to find contentment in him, no matter what. And so all of a sudden, sin enters the garden, and the paradise that it was intended to be is discontinued, and they're out. And in the midst of being out, they, they, before, even, even before they get into the wilderness, ultimately, they're going through just, just different situations. But God promises, this is not hopeless. I still have a plan to rescue you. Ultimately, they fall into slavery in Egypt. God rescues them out of that wasteland, out of slavery, and then he sets them up and says, you're going to be a people and you're going to have a nation. Now, in order to have a nation, you have to have three things. You got to have people. Boom. We just got all these people right out of slavery. You've got the people for the nation. You got to have real estate. 
And God said, I've got the real estate. It's over there right through Kadesh Barnea. It's called the promised land and it's promised to you. So people, real estate, you need one more thing. You need a constitution. And that's what was drafted on Mount Sinai. This is how we operate between you and I. I am your God. You are my people. You follow my lead. You find your contentment in me. That's how this works. And, and when God allows them to come right up to the promised land, all of a sudden they find discontentment even there. And in the discontentment, they basically say, there's no way that we could go into this, this new territory without the military threat of us getting our, our rear ends handed to us. And so we're, we're not going to do it. And so God says, okay, you are going to experience a 40-year period. This is like, the, if you've ever been grounded for a long time, this is way longer. It's like the historical, like Guinness Book of World Records of grounding was the wilderness, the wasteland where God's people had to occupy themselves in there. And that generation was never going to see the promised land. It was going to be their kids. Now, is that a hopeless situation? No, because God is still there. And so what God does is this. God says, I'm going to train you in the wilderness to learn contentment found in me. So I'm going to, your, your clothing is going to be sustainable. It's going to have like just longer resiliency. And you're in a desert. You're in a wasteland. You're in a wilderness. I'm going to provide you food. Now, the people were discontent still on that because they're like, man, we had some great stuff in Egypt. Like, why do we have to eat what we have here? And God's like, trust me, this is for your good. And so what would happen is they'd open up their, their tent each morning and they would see their food laying, like do it settled and hardened. And it was like all across the surface of the ground, which sounds gross, but for whatever reason, they didn't like, it wasn't something that grossed out their food. It was like frosted flakes that had dried. I don't know if you like frosted flakes or not, but this was like frosted flakes that you could enjoy even without the milk. And so lactose intolerant Hebrews are like, yes. And so like they gather this each day. Now somebody like me, if there was a McFadden in the camp, they're like, okay, let's get a ton of this. And like, we'll just have like, like a week's worth. And God said, no, see, that's not how this works. What happens is this, this flaky stuff happens every single morning. It's for you every single morning. But you're only gonna gather enough for how many days? One. Because the expiration date on this is like, it's like even slower than the expiration date on guacamole. What's gonna happen is this. If you hoard more than one day, by the time you wake up the next day, you're like, ah, I got like three more days in my tent ready and no one knows about it. That will instantly go rotten and it will be filled with maggots and reek. Everyone's gonna know your tent and that you totally took more than one day because your tent's gonna be the one that reeks up the camp. It's gonna smell. And so God says, I'm giving you enough for every day. And people are like, well, how are we supposed to know if we're gonna have enough for the rest of the week? And God says, I, I'm not promising you the rest of the week. I'm promising you each day, you're gonna have exactly enough. So what they would do is they'd wake up in the morning, open the tent, they'd see the frosted flakes on the ground, they'd collect enough for their family for one day. And throughout that day, they would take out that bank account of frosted flakes until they were done with the day. And when they got to the end of the day, when they're about to go to bed, they were bankrupt of food the pantries were bare. It was not going to happen. There's no food. And they would ask themselves the question, are we sure we're going to have food tomorrow when they put their head on their pillow? And when they woke up the next day, they'd open up their tent and there was one more day. And this happened day after day after day that God is teaching them. You need to, this is called the manna principle. You need to trust me for one day at a time. I'm not promising you two days. I'm not promising you a month. I'm not giving you a five-year plan. I'm giving you enough sustenance for how many days? One. And then eventually, again, just like all the wastelands throughout scripture, they ultimately go into the promised land. Joshua, not Moses, leads his people into the promised land. 
And they go in and all of a sudden they have all three things necessary for a nation. And for a while things go well. But the very thing that they were like talked about that, as far as God's like, find your contentment in me starts to expire where they're like, here's the deal. Like, I believe in God. I'm not saying I don't believe in God. I'm not an atheist. I'm not agnostic. I believe in the one true God. But here's the thing. Frank, right down the street, he believes in God too, but his grandparents were big Baal worshipers. It's like, I mean, it's, and it, I'm pretending like that's a bad word. It's not a bad word. Baal's not terrible. I mean, is it bad that he's worshiping the one true God and Baal? I mean, his life is fine. It's not like anything's going wrong. His kid got picked for the travel baseball team when my kid didn't. And he's worshiping Baal. So I'm, I'm, all I'm saying is that it's not like ruining Frank's life. Is it a big deal that I'm bringing both the worship of God and the worship of Baal into the same family? Is that is it such a big deal? And God's like, that's exactly what I told you. That that's the one thing you can't do. That is, if Baal is false, he's fake. You're running after falsehoods. You, I'm creating you for life, but you're designed for life to find your contentment in me. And if you continue down this path, you're declaring independence for me and I will step back. And if I step back, other countries, other empires are going to come in and take you out and take you out of this promised land. And the people are like, totally hear what you're saying. I'm going to do what I want to do anyway. As so they go from promised land into exile, the next wasteland. And this is a time where they're, they're, they're brought out. And it's, uh, we, have, we have the Assyrian Empire come in. We have the Babylonian Empire come in. It's, it's awful. And what's really, really messed up is what happens to that amazing promised land that God promised his people. Because once they were gone, the prophet Jeremiah talked about what it looked like. Listen to this. I looked at the earth and it was... Tohu, wabohu. It's almost as if like, man, we just reset the clock. We went right back to before God got his creative hands into something. You've just pushed it right back. Tohu, wabohu is the way that we look at the ending of scripture. That word is something that we see as, as just absolutely descriptive of how the Old Testament ends. In fact, let's put that back on the screen. This is, if you wanted to look at what the scriptures look like as far as its overall outlook, the Old Testament ends this way. Spiritually speaking, the people are formless and void. They're in darkness. It's not light. And it's something that God is like, this is not what I've created you for. That's how the Old Testament ends. The New Testament starts off with God saying, is this hopeless? No, because I'm still a part of this equation and I am going to enter in. So God sends Jesus, his only son, into the tohu wabohu, into the darkness, into the void, into the wilderness to walk as a human. And one of the first things that Jesus does to start off his ministry is he does, goes right to the tohu wabohu. He goes to the wilderness, the wasteland, the desert, and he experiences temptations by Satan. And this is the crazy thing. Satan chucks at Jesus everything that would make any other human being discontent. And he tempts him with discontentment, 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 and none of it works. And what happens is we see in Jesus in that wilderness, in that wasteland setting, a, a picture of what it looks like to say, in the midst of the fact that I am pr I'm prone to not like the conditions I'm in, I'm going to find my stability, my security, a contentment in my connection with God the Father. And Jesus gives us the example, but he didn't just come to give us an example. He eventually goes through three years of ministry and he gets tried for crimes that he did not do. And he gets put on a Roman cross and killed with capital punishment for sins that he never committed. But he did it for us. He climbed into the void and the darkness of sin that he didn't commit and experienced the punishment for it. 
with this purpose that anybody, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, if you turn to him and say, I realize that my life is tohu wabohu. My life is void of, the cre- of what I'm cre- intended for. And my only hope is in you. I'm asking you to forgive me that he would do it. One of, one of the guys that, that hated Jesus, but God turned on to the reality of Jesus later on in his life was Paul. And Paul said, when that happens, when a person says that, we become the new creation. Eden is happening again. Creation happened back there, but it's happening brand new inside of me. And that's the reality. Now, now, if you're a Christian, you've been a Christian for five minutes, you realize something though. Because a lot of times when we become a Christian, we're like, okay, I'm, 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 I'm changing my perspective on sin. I, I realize that the way that I've been living has been off. And so I'm surrendering my life to Jesus, which should make my life awesome. And if you've been Christian for five minutes or five weeks or maybe five years, you eventually come to the point of realizing life is still happening like where I'm hitting like some really messed up sections of life. It's still difficult. Marriage is still difficult. Friends are still difficult. Trying to make a way through life is just crazy town sometimes. So I thought that this was supposed to be so put together. And if I'm on God's side and he knows everything and he could do anything, why is this still happening to me? Why is there still emptiness and void in my life? Isn't this like the opposite of what God should be doing for me? Nancy Guthrie put it this way. I love how she put this in her book. She said, perhaps you've come to see your emptiness as your biggest problem. I have to tell you, that's not how God sees it. God sees the emptiness in your life as his greatest opportunity because God does his best work with empty as he fills it with himself. If you're in a wasteland now and you're in God, you have a promise that you are ultimately gonna be on the other side of that wasteland and that God is gonna do some of his best work in your life and shaping who you are and who he intends you to be in this time. If we had a title for this message, it's not in the book, I would just title it this, don't waste the wasteland. Do not waste the wasteland. This period of time and the next time you go into a period of time like it is on purpose and for purpose. Uh, I've told this story so many times, but I, I love it. My eldest son, Micah, he's, he's old now. He's 22, 22. Wow. When he was younger than that, like, like when he was like five or so, he was still afraid of the dark. I'm not gonna raise, ask for people to raise their hands if you're afraid of the dark now, because a majority of you are not, because you're over that. But if, you're, if, if you could just think about how terrifying darkness was back in the day when you were a kid. It was trauma- It was awful. Like you think like things that you worry about now are bad, like, like relationships and taxes, nothing compared to darkness when you're five. When you're five, all of the worst things in your imagination could potentially be hiding, waiting to get you as soon as your dad or mom leaves the room. And so I was, I was saying goodnight to Mike, I was praying with him, and he had just become a Christian the year before. He, you know, he was really, really young. Does he understand everything about God? No way. But he, he knew enough to be like, there is a God, and I realized that I'm, I'm, I've done stuff that separates me from the life that he's created me to, to live in, so I'm going to ask him for, for forgiveness. And he did that like a year before. But Mike is freaking out at five. And he's like, dad, I'm just, I'm, I'm scared of the dark. I'm scared of the dark. Don't leave. Don't leave. And I'm just like, I just want to leave. I just want to leave. And he's like, dad, just don't leave. And so like, please, I'm, I'm so scared. And, and I'm like, son, why are you scared? He's like, it's dark. I'm like, but Micah, listen, remember you, you asked Jesus to forgive your sins? Yeah. Well, 
you believe in God. Yeah? Well, God's everywhere. God's everywhere. God's everywhere. Even here? Yeah, even here. In the dark? Yes, even in the dark. God is right here with you. And Micah stops. And he goes, let's find him. <laughs> You're in Tohuwabohu. Darkness, empty, void. If you're in Christ, he's there. This is how we find him. This is how we not waste the wasteland. Two things. First off, realize that the wasteland is for evaluation. There is a point to this. Look at what Paul says. Let's go back to that passage that we read. He says, I will not, abo- I will not boast about myself except about my what? Weaknesses. Who does that? Nobody like files like, like he's filling out a job application. He says, well, let me just lead with my weaknesses. I will show up late every day and I will do absolutely inept work. I am competent 55% of the time. You can count on that. Maybe. I mean, that, that's like, no one does that. No one like, like, it, no one like leads that way with like on a date. Like, look, this date's going great, but I just got to tell you, I've got like terminally bad breath and that is not going away. Okay. No one does that. No one leads with their weaknesses. Who, in fact, Paul, even in that past, I don't know if you've been around someone that when you're around them, it's like they're always talking about themselves. And like always like bringing the conversation for like, yeah, you know, I, I had a, a grandma who, my grandma's like, she's wrestling with cancer. They'll find a way to take that conversation and bring it back to something about themselves, which is weird. Okay, that's what Paul is saying in the beginning of this passage. Right before this, he's like, look, I gotta, I gotta be honest with you. There's a whole lot that I could talk about myself about. I'm pretty awesome but I'm not gonna boast about myself except for about my weaknesses. He continues, even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. I am that good. I'm awesome and you should all be impressed, but I refrain so that no one will think more of me than what is warranted by what I do or say or because of these surpassingly great revelations. In other words, I've got so much to brag about, so much to make you find, find yourself like impressed by me. My instinct is to try to impress you with like my, all the accolades that I could do. This is my highlight reel, but I've looked at all the things that I could brag about. And to, I'll be completely honest, I don't want to brag about them anymore because they're my handicap. Me personally, they're my handicap, Paul would say. And he tells us why in the next verse. He says, therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. Okay, so first off, this thorn, a lot of times we think, oh, a little like rosebud thorn. Oh, I pricked my finger, a little blood, a little blood. This thorn in Greek is describing like a sharpened stake, like Dracula stake, okay? So it's like, and, and nobody knows really what this thorn is. Like some people think that it was an actual literal thorn, like like I, I've, got, I've been given, so I wouldn't be conceited. Whenever I'm walking around, I've got this constant pain of this, this thing in my back that can't be surgically removed, otherwise I'm gonna die or something. Some people think that the thorn was, it was like some type of a malady, like a, a physical limitation or a disease that limited him. It, Paul wasn't able to experience all of his full potential because of this thorn in the flesh. Some people think that it was like a sin issue, like that he just wrestled with, he couldn't get over it. That it's like, man, whenever I'm about to think that I'm awesome, I think about how I still have this like crazy addiction and it just, it's not, it's something I can't get over. Some people think that it was an actual person, that a messenger from Satan was actually like legit. Like this is Bob. 
I can't stand Bob. Whenever I think that I'm doing something right, Bob's like, you're not that great. I'm like, thanks, Bob. And like, whenever I'm about to get thinking of myself higher than I should, Bob's right there to, to cut me right down to size. Nobody knows because it's, it's not 100% clear. So everyone's got conjecture. All we know is how Paul is processing this. In his wasteland wilderness experience, he's processing it as saying this. I don't know why this is happening, but I could tell you, I could tell you one th- reason what God is doing through this. I'm evaluating this wasteland and saying that part of why I've got this unfortunate, painful, uncomfortable reality, where it's a person or a disease, one thing is that God is accomplishing his work of keeping me from getting all full of myself. If I didn't have this, man, there would be nothing holding me back and I'd be awesome. But God apparently is causing me to realize that if it wasn't for this pain, I would, this pain that I'm experiencing in the wasteland is more favorable to me than if I didn't have it and what I would ultimately become or what I would ultimately do if I didn't have this. That God in his wisdom is actually allowing me to experience something uncomfortable and lame that I would not vote for, that I've asked God to take away three times. He's allowing me to go through this because the alternative would be far more painful and far more disastrous. So I'm gonna evaluate this time frame. Why am I here? This is why the wasteland actually sets us up for repentance. If you're in a wasteland right now, one of the, you should be asking hard questions. You shouldn't be putting it all on you like you're just like a terrible person or like, oh, I just feel like I'm just, God's just, he hates me and that's why this is happening. Don't do that, but ask hard questions. You'd be dumb not to ask hard questions. God, is there anything in my life that has set up this wasteland from happening, is for, for happening? In the Bible, we see God basically prescribing a wasteland situation for certain people. And we see other times in the Bible where wasteland happens because it's just simple cause and effect. You're doing something outside of God's plan and that, that's what happens. So for example, like if I was someone who just, I went over to the bank in town and I held it up. I took all the money and I walked away. And as I'm walking away, Manuka PD pulls me over and arrests me. I should be sitting there going, where were you on that one, God? That you loved me. I should have gotten away with this. No, that's cause and effect. Like, that just, but here's the thing. In both situations, 100% of both situations, 100% of the time, God is going to use that in a believer's life to unwrap them into utilizing and maximizing what's happening in that wasteland to bring them closer to him. So ask, is there something in me that, that's causing me, causing a need for me to, be, to repent and say, God, I'm seeing some of my flaws. This isn't 100% of me maybe, but I'm, I'm realizing that I need to ask you for forgiveness. And then the wasteland isn't wasted. God may be allowing you to be going through this pain because the alternative is even worse. But the other part of that is relatability. God may be allowing you to go through this really horrible time, not because it's protecting you from anything and not because you, there's anything for you to repent of. You might be a, just a victim of this situation but God is not going to waste it. Evaluate, pay attention, keep your eyes wide open during this time because what's gonna happen is seven years down the road, you're gonna run into someone who's hit a brick wall of a wasteland and is gonna feel absolutely isolated and nobody knows what they're going through. But you do because of this. And because of this, because you're in Christ, you're able to even to walk into that situation and give them what they would not have on their own. Paul continues, he says this. 
when asked to take this away from me three times, he said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, and this is huge. My grace is sufficient. Basically he's saying this, you're going through a garbagey situation. And you're like, yeah, God, I can't do this for another week. And God's like, I'm not promising you to get you through another week. Well, I can't do this for another day. That's where you're wrong. Because my grace is enough to get you through one more day. I'm not promising you two days. I'm not promising you four. My grace is sufficient. It's enough to get you through one more day. And my power, God's, God's power can't get greater. It's 100%. He's all powerful. But it can be made perfect. It can be more focused and pragmatic and practical in our life. Not in the times where life seems to be going smooth, but in the weak points, in the waste lands. My grace is enough for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, this is why Paul's like, I'm not an idiot. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. Folks, the wasteland is for evaluation, but it's not just for evaluation. The wasteland isn't forever. The second thing that will get you through it is to realize that, that the, the God who is forever is greater than this wasteland which isn't. Whatever wasteland you're going through, it's got a time stamp. It's got an expiration date. You're going to get to the other side of it that God promises to give you enough to get you through it. Which brings us back to this banner that I chose for, the, for our sermon today. This is actually Joshua Tree. I don't know if, has anyone been to Joshua Tree? Coolest place. I'm a, one of my favorite places on planet Earth. I love it. it. But it's so cool. But you know how the Joshua Tree got its name? And it wasn't you too. About 150 years ago, 200 years ago, there was a bunch of religious migrants that were going through the, through the desert, through the wasteland. And here's the thing, we, it's, they were not trying like, oh, this is lovely here. Look at the yucca plants. Let's stay here forever. No, they were like, when you get to a desert and you're, you're migrating, you're, you're traveling, you're trying to get through it. We just need to get to the other side of it. Everything in this place is death to us. But the thing that these religious migrants had when they saw that was a reminder. And this is what they said. This reminds us of God's chosen people going through the wilderness, the wasteland. And that there was Joshua, Joshua who brought them from the wasteland to the promised land. And they said, those trees remind us of Joshua raising his hands to pray to God in the midst of the difficulty, with the confidence that God is guiding them through to the, to the promised land. And so they named the place Joshua Tree. Now they didn't want to make it a national park. They still wanted to get through it. They weren't dumb. But every time they were feeling hopeless, one of the things about Joshua Tree is that they're everywhere. There was these ongoing reminders, trust God, promised land is just this way. You want to know the weirdest thing about Joshua Tree today? People actually go there on purpose. They camp there. People live there. People go there. I took my son Carson there on his 13th birthday for giggles because I loved it so much. People buy t-shirts of their experience. Why? What's different today than 200 years ago in that place? Same place. What's different today than then? Bar. <laughs> and we know where the resources are. We know how to get water in that place. We know how to get food in that place. If you're here, you're able to actually go through it better simply because you know where your help comes from. If you're a Christian, you're in a wasteland right now, and you're like, when is this going to be over? 
When can we get through this? And there's no answer to that except for this. God, his grace is enough to get you through one more day that you can have the confidence to know that the God who is forever is greater than the wasteland which isn't. That you could actually have the confidence to know that God is bringing you through this to the other side of this. You might be someone who's just coming out of a wasteland and you might be thinking to yourself, whew, glad I'm done with that. No, no more of those for the rest of my life. And if you've been a Christian long enough or alive long enough or you're just paying attention, you realize that no, there's another wasteland coming, but you don't have to be blindsided by it because you know where your help comes from. Amen? This is, this is why Paul ends that passage this way. This is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecution, in difficulty. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I would love for that to be tattooed across our heart as we're going to the wasteland that we currently are in or in the wasteland that's just a week down the road, that when we hit that place, we will know when I am weak, this is when God's about to do some of his greatest work. When I am weak, this is where I'm gonna see God's all-powerful nature show up. When I am weak, then I am strong. Stand for prayer. Lord God, I pray for everyone in this room who's currently going through a wasteland, a wilderness experience, God, where they feel devoid of resources, of joy, of support, of friendship, of health, whatever it is that they're going through, Lord. But I pray that if they're in you, that they will find the reality that you, your grace is enough to get them through one more day. And when they put their head on their pillow tonight, they will have exhausted every resource from you. They will be bankrupt. But they'll have the confidence that as soon as they wake up, they will have just enough for one more day from you, the God that provides for us, even in the wastelands. For those of us, Lord, that are on the outside of a wasteland, help us keep our eyes open to the people around us who are hurting because you've called us to be the type of people that are coming alongside them in these times. Learning everything that we learned in the wastelands of our life. And God, when we see all this, we'll give you thanks and we'll give you glory and I pray that our world is better because of it. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Love you, church.